This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore higher education assessment for disabled students. My guest is Yuso Niemimin, an assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong. Yuso argues that assessment adjustments are often technical processes that presuppose a medical logic. For example, in many countries, universities would have disability centers that would take care of these students in a a centralized manner. That's not the case in Finland, for example, um, uh, where we would have much more teacher autonomy and and much less uh, centralized solutions to treat students with disabilities. Yuso's new article is a spanner in the works, The Portrayal of Disabled Students in Assessment Adjustment Research, which was published by the journal International Studies in Sociology of Education. Yuso Nieminen, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. When we think about higher education today, how is the traditional student typically portrayed? So I must emphasize that in my work, I have only really approached this question from the viewpoint of disabilities. What I think is interesting is that, so obviously the answer to the question would vary between different contexts, between different countries, higher education institutes. There are some general characteristics. For example, there was a very nice article by our Wong colleagues from 2021 where they uh, outlined these dimensions of the ideal student from the viewpoint of what students and teachers in higher education were thinking about. And they raised up perhaps some non-surprising, at least for me, uh, dimensions such as diligence and engagement, uh, organization, disciplined nature of, of students, reflective, innovative, able to control their own studies and their own learning proactive, things like this. Even though we have some of these general ideas, of course, some countries would have, even in legislation, they would have a very definite answer to your question. For example, in Australia, we would definitely list indigenous people as one equity group, and there would be a list of different types of people who count as equity groups in a very different way as as you would have here in Hong Kong or in Finland where I was born and raised. But what I do find interesting from my own specific point of view is that even though we obviously have these contextual differences in terms of what counts as an ideal student in different disciplines, different institutions, different countries, quite rarely we understand disabled students to fit that idea of ideal student. I think we tend to think that uh, as higher education institution is widening, we're accepting more and more students. It's not an elitistic institution anymore in a similar way as it was. 100 years ago. We now widen the access to higher education and we tend to think that now these equity groups are able to benefit from the good that higher education provides. And I think it's interesting that it, it is widening the idea of an ideal student, but whether it's, it is widening that image of that imaginative ideal student from the viewpoint of abilities, disabilities, I think that's a very interesting question. And I, and I think the next 10 years will really define whether disabilities also fit that widened idea of this portrayal. It's quite interesting to think that, you know, like on the one hand, there's this massive democratization of access to higher education, but the portrayal of what we think of as an ideal university student 
sort of lags behind these groups that have now gained access. And as you said, there's all different types of groups that are now gaining access to higher education. Do we know sort of, I don't know, globally or, or within specific countries, how many students with disabilities are actually accessing university? And is that number increasing? Is this? Do we know that there is a greater number of students with disabilities gaining access to universities worldwide? Yeah, this is a tricky question. I <laughs> was too not one to answer it because, um, yes, we do. I, I could give you some citations on how it is a global phenomenon that through the massification of higher education, yes, the number of uh, students with disabilities is also increasing in, in many contexts. And I could offer you some numbers from some specific contexts. I also really want to enhance the critical reflection that we have towards those numbers and what they tell us. Because I'm, I'm aware of this thinking that we would have this uh, minority with a certain percentage, like 4.6% percent in a certain context and that we need to take care of and we need to nurture because that's what we need to do as the majority. That that kind of thinking is often seen when we talk about policy and practice in higher education uh, in terms of disabilities. But what that number really tells about is that usually a rather low number is that also in many contexts Finland included not very capable of promoting the access of people with disabilities or disabled people, as I would say many times in this uh, in this podcast, just to emphasize the fact that these environments would be disabling people in in many ways through inaccessible design. So yeah, for example, in Finland, I, I actually did do my homework. There was a student health survey in 2016 saying that we have uh, roughly 6.5% of students self-reporting a learning difficulty. Uh, there was another publication by the Ministry of Education and Culture in Finland in 2021 reporting a number of 4.8% of students self-reporting a learning disability. These kinds of numbers we would get roughly around the world. In some countries it's a bit bigger, in some countries a bit lower. But of course the definitions differ a lot. And I think we need to be extremely critical towards what the number tells us about the actual situation. And I think that kind of critical reflection is particularly needed in this, can we call it a post-COVID period? Yeah, I guess we're getting there. Uh, not sure about Hong Kong, but for example, in Finland, the Finnish Student Health and Wellbeing Survey in 2021, uh, in the later part of the year, reported that one third of the higher education students uh, self-reported symptoms of anxiety and depression. And we would have similar statistics from many other contexts. So. Uh, this goes back to the idea of an ideal student. We have these rather alarming numbers of mental health issues, generally issues with student well-being and stress. So who counts as an ideal student? Who counts as a non-ideal student in this environment? And yeah, that these numbers we definitely need to carefully look at. It is interesting you bring up COVID and issues of mental health because here in the UK, it's in the newspapers. We talk about it. I, I know at the university where I work, it's a big issue. And so it is quite amazing to realize how many students are self-reporting or are struggling with issues of mental illness, as well as other disabilities, you know, physical as well. So I want to, I guess I want to turn, you know, getting away from some of these numbers, let's think through educational practice. You, you brought up issues of educational practice and policy. How are students with disabilities treated inside universities? Like what actually happens on a day-to-day -day basis for students with disabilities in a university? What do we know? As I mentioned, my, I approach this issue from the specific angle of assessment, how student learning is assessed in higher education settings. And my data set so far mainly comes from Finland, and that would really be the 
background for this. So very briefly, of course, uh, in different higher education context institutions, we would have different kinds of models. For example, in many countries, universities would have uh, disability centers that would take care of these students in a, like a centralized manner. That's not the case in Finland, for example, and, uh, where we would have much more teacher autonomy and, and much less uh, centralized solutions to treat students with disabilities. But when I think about this, particularly from the viewpoint of teaching and assessment, so not so much from many other crucially important viewpoints such as student well-being or, or health services, what we tend to do is that we offer assessment-related adjustments or accommodations, uh, different words used in different parts of the world, that tend to be rather test-focused. By far the most common practices, and this would be true in England or around the world, according to um, this review paper that I recently published, we tend to offer practices such as extra time in tests or separate testing rooms, and these practices really tend to be centralized around test exams. And that is issue that is constantly brought up by students in my studies, that they would benefit from a more coherent form of support, but support in higher education is mostly focused on exams. The logic here is that since assessment is primarily focused on examination, if there is a student with disabilities in particularly the Finnish higher education system, they would be given additional adjustments to taking those examinations. And that typically falls in by providing more time. Is that right? Are there other accommodations around assessment that might be given? We might also change the format of assessment. For example, perhaps oral presentation would be changed into an essay format. So there are other kinds of practices as well, but the issue is that they tend to be rather technical, almost mechanical, and always quite practical. And and um, what my main criticism, and this is a rather pro <laughs> uh, approach to it, is that we should be taking a bit more holistic ways of approaching the very large societal issues of inclusion and exclusion that we can't ever tackle with something uh, purely technical. Simple. One of the issues that I'm not clear about is when it comes to accommodations, assessment accommodations for students with disabilities, do these accommodations differ by disability or is it sort of like this generic sort of like if you have some sort of disability, any disability, more time is the solution to, you know, giving you proper, fair assessment of your knowledge. This is actually linked to my previous answer. So the common model of thinking about this is rather medical. By which I mean that when we think about assessment adjustments, we think about certain disability types. We might talk about autism or ADHD or dyslexia. And then on the other hand, we have uh, almost like a menu of practices, extra time in tests, maybe 30 minutes of extra time or 45 minutes of extra time or one hour, one hour uh, on and 30 minutes. And then we would try to pair up these different types of disabilities with these different kinds of practices in the menu of assessment adjustments. And you can make an analog to medical practices. So you have some kind of a symptom. What could we do, do with that? What kind of medicine or cure do you need for your symptoms? And that's where we come back to the idea of technical solutions to issues that might not actually be technical in their, in their nature. And so what is some of the impact of this, this sort of technical medicalized approach to dealing with assessment adjustments? Like, does this contribute to further marginalization of students? It actually does. And that is exactly what my research concerns. So here I want to emphasize that it is very important to look at assessment adjustments from the specific viewpoint of assessment. So 
We could be talking about adjustments for people with disabilities more broadly. What I argue in my research is that if we take an assessment-specific view, we can understand the nuances of assessment. This might sound obvious, but it's actually very important. To answer your question, first of all, I want to emphasize that we would always need some kinds of adjustments. No disability-related research or activism would ever deny that we there's always a need for some personalized adjustments. But the issue is that there is a huge overemphasis on these mechanical practices, which has its impact on how students come to understand themselves as either ideal or perhaps rather non-ideal students. And what we know based on research from many, many decades is that, that uh, these adjustments that are specifically related to assessment also related to uh, further stigmatization and shame perceived by, by students with disabilities. One very practical example of this is a situation that has been reported in studies from many parts of the world, also in my studies in Finland, is a very academic situation where you can imagine an exam hall with students sitting in nice rows, everyone working on with their pen and paper, this pre-pandemic kind of an imagination that we're doing here, and then the time is over and all the students leave the exam hall, except the students who have extra time in their test, who stay in the hall and who everyone can see. And this situation has been reported in research many, many times. And it is only rather recently that we've started to connect the dots and also understand the social, emotional, uh, political aspects of these kinds of situations, which actually goes to issues of disability discrimination and not just some technical individual practices. That's a really interesting example because it begins to show how these technical solutions to an individual's disability within an assessment situation actually sort of creates them as, I think you said in your research, they get sort of created as this other and everyone sees them and then it does marginalize, it does discriminate um, and it sort of goes against the very idea of what the accommodation was trying to prevent or help and resolve in the first place. Exactly. And at the same time, we construct this idea of disability as something medicalized. And look, there would be so much work from people who've done this work decades before me, examining different models for disability, different ways through which we understand disabilities. And there's so much work on social, political, societal approaches to what counts as disability, how we understand this phenomenon. But when it comes to assessment in higher education. These mechanical practices further strengthen our idea of disability as something purely psychological and medical. And we and that leads us into a situation where we are almost unable to see what is right in front of us, that this is also a wider social, social political issue of who higher education is for and how this question might be changing as higher education massifies, as is a term that is often used. So, I mean, we've sort of been talking a little bit about this educational practice of assessment and the, the, the technical medicalized nature of accommodations and how that might further sort of discrimination and marginalization of certain students with disabilities. And as we started, and you, you sort of were inferring about how this then creates a particular version of an ideal student that disabled students are not a part of. And so it sort of furthers them or others them. Are some of these ideas that exist in educational practice, are they reinforced and reproduced in the educational research that happens? I mean, because obviously you're working in this world of academic research. And yeah, it's just an interesting question of like, how does education research sort of contribute or not sort of go against some of the othering that happens to disabled students in the assessment practices? Yeah, so this is exactly the question that I tackled in article where I reviewed 
26 studies on assessment adjustments, so assessment-specific adjustments in, in higher education settings. And these studies tend to be psychological in their nature, which in itself is definitely not something that I've criticized. It, we need this kind of research and, and we need this knowledge that these are highly controlled psychological studies, experiments uh, provide that's, that's needed. But at the same time, we do need to look at how, what kind of an image they build about uh, student disabilities. And as we tend to conduct research through the psychological paradigm, for example, we use control groups of students with disabilities and students without disabilities. We use a lot of psychological measurements. We use statistical tools. How we come to, at the same time, construct an idea of an ideal of and non-ideal students. That's something that I'm focusing in my research. And that is something that is not a product of mean researchers trying to frame students somewhere in a very bad light. That's not my argument in any kind of way. Actually, it's almost the opposite because I, I don't know anything about the intentions of these researchers and I'm almost not interested in them. What I'm saying with this uh, piece of research is that well, when we take a medicalized strongly medicalized approach to studying assessment adjustments that has its consequences and those consequences are, are something that my <laughs> future research will also be focusing on. I guess the more theoretical question is how do we know that academic research that might take this psychological medicalized approach and use a particular discourse in the way it writes up findings, how do we know it actually has some sort of impact on the lived reality of students? That is an excellent question. That's a really interesting question here. I don't have an easy answer for you. It's a tricky thing because obviously if I publish a research article in an academic journal, there's no direct link between that article and what happens to some students in some higher education institute somewhere in real life. But at the same time, we're talking about expert knowledge. And of course, it matters what kind of what kind of expert knowledge is produced about a certain group of people. I would say that we've learned lessons about doing this in academic research. For example, when it comes to research on people with disabilities, we have, for a long time, we've had this um, ideal of nothing about us <laughs> without us. And that kind of thinking is already promoted in, in many other fields. So it does matter what kind of knowledge and by whom is created in, in scholarly, scholarly research. And perhaps one thing that, I, that could be noted here is that this Studies in the review, many of them were quite strongly advocating for practical impact. And as we know uh, that in practice, our education institutes often focus their assessment-related forms of support in these rather mechanical uh, aspects. And then we have quite psychologicized research advocating for more of that and even, even stronger. That might have its consequences, but of course it is not a direct link here. But academic research is a part of a public discourse. And it does have certain kind of power in public discourse compared to many other things such as opinions or beliefs or so forth. I've been in many rooms where people say the academic research says this and so therefore we should do X, Y, and Z. So I could see how that could impact directly certain educational practice and even policies that get created at the sort of government level. The other thing that you sort of bring up that I found so interesting is, you know, in this sort of exploration of academic literature and how it portrays students with disabilities vis-a-vis -vis the assessment systems in higher education. You also make this sort of argument that one of the other outcomes of this is that it reinforces the testing regime itself. Can you say a little bit more about that? The studies in this review were all about exams. Even the concept of assessment adjustments was most often framed as testing adjustments or exam adjustments. And 
I think this is something that still largely characterizes higher education, and it is connected to the massification of higher education institutions. We do need to produce measurable learning data of our students. Uh, we do need to offer grades to our students. So here we can start to see links between what happens in assessment and what happens with assessment adjustments. The need for that objective measured data, grades, that, that's needed for the purposes of employability and, and, and so forth. We can't get rid of those. And we know that it's quite rare that we would have a higher education institution without that numerical assessment data. And what kinds of practices are needed to provide objective, comparable data? Well, tests and exams, they are still the king of assessment when it, when it comes to this. And it might be that in as the higher education system systems expand, these kinds of not research-intensive forms of collecting the data, such as exams, might get even more popular because uh, it's a very different thing to assess a large class of 1,000 students than it is to assess a, a tiny course with uh, 12 students. So I guess, you know, we're sort of left with this question of what are some alternatives then? Like, you know, if we take your critique seriously, how would assessment and assessment accommodations, because as you say, students with disabilities need some sort of accommodation. So what would it look like in a way? Like where, you know, what directions would you point to? There are a couple of things I would like to mention. First of all, I think we need to critically examine the whole assessment adjustment model that we have and the overemphasis on that. I think we need to start critically examining who these adjustments are for. Currently, we have a very medical, psychological understanding of who is worthy of these adjustments almost. In most contexts, you need some kind of a medical or psychological diagnosis to even access these practices. And in some other contexts, such as the US, this would be quite centralized in a way that you absolutely need the diagnosis. Whereas in other contexts, such as Finland, the teacher might just offer you some kinds of practices just because they want to, even without seeing your diagnosis. So who are these practices for? And very much related to this, I think one way of enhancing assessment and the assessment adjustment model is simply trying to affect the cultures of higher education and the attitudes in higher education. It's the reason why this has been the focus of my research is that when, when I started my scientific career and when I started to hear these stories from students themselves, the very deep emotional stories about stigma, shame in higher education settings when it comes to, for example, learning disabilities. It really makes you think why these specific human features are so stigmatized in academic settings. We have kind of normalized certain human characteristics, but still, we have normalized many characteristics in academia. But when it comes to the overall culture of attitudes, there's a lot of stigma, and we can just call it, call it what it is. There's, this is ableism in practice. For example, uh, I did one study where I analyzed all the documents in Finnish universities concerning assessment adjustments, including all the web pages, all the text forms that students themselves need to read if they want to access these adjustments. And I could actually read a very tiny paragraph on the instructions of one university for students with disabilities who might benefit from a personalized room for testing. I think this expert really shows the language that we use to talk to these, these students as they would be something external somewhere over there and not uh, members of academic communities. So these are instructions for using this special examination room. Take your writing equipment out and hang your outdoor clothing and bag on the, on the rack in the room. Shut down your phone and put it in your bag or in the pocket of your jacket. There can be nothing else on the table. No phone, no drinking bottle. 
unless you have a special permission for that. Information about the approved adjustments is written on the exam envelope. It is forbidden to touch the computer, the keyboard, and the computer mouse in the room. When I think about someone talking to me like this, because I am a member of an academic community, that, that would be devastating. Uh, so this is the way that we address these students, as if they would be some kind of an external, non-ideal part of this bigger picture. And, and just changing these attitudes that we have when it comes to abilities in higher education settings, that's already... Uh, a huge thing that would affect assessment as well. I take all those points, but I want to sort of push a little more radically in a way. Like, And this goes back to the issue of the testing regime. I mean, sure, we need comparable data to understand assessment and, and student, you know, maybe academic standards or whatever. But is it possible to just sort of get rid of grading? And, you know, like, isn't there this idea of like the ungrading approach to higher education? Like, what if we just get rid of all of that sort of grading and assessment to begin with? And then we might not have to deal with some of these issues that you're bringing up. I mean, is that too radical? Or, I mean, maybe those issues will still come up in whatever system gets created in the end. Not too radical at all. Yeah, so in my work, this is something that I've called assessment for inclusion. So whenever we design assessment, we have some kinds of desirable features in mind. We want assessment to be objective. Or we want assessment to support student learning or whatever. But my very basic argument is that if we want assessments to also acknowledge student diversity and inclusion, we need to de meaningfully design that into assessment and practically design that idea into assessment. Because the issue when it comes to the testing regime is that it sees disabilities or actually almost any form of student diversity as a threat, as something that needs to, that, as something that obscures assessment that we need to accommodate. We need to get rid of that in order to keep the validity of that regime. And this is not only a matter of, matter of disabilities, but a matter of student diversity more broadly. So I wouldn't say that what you said is too radical at all. I think it would actually benefit the whole academic community if we would come up with ways of assessment that would celebrate the diversity that we have in academic communities. By way of conclusion here, like, is there an example that you can point to that where that is possible or where that has happened? And, you know, like, what would that actually look like in assessment to design assessment with, you know, including the diversity of different types of students into the actual assessment process from the beginning rather than accommodating them at the end? for you know validity purposes first of all we have so much research on what kind of assessment supports student learning so much decades and decades and decades on research on practices such as self-assessment peer assessment portfolios e-portfolios student-centered feedback cyclical feedback that allows students to use feedback in, in practice and develop their thinking while they're doing that we have so much knowledge but actually it hasn't been easy to bring that knowledge and actually use that in practice in higher education, which I understand as a teacher in higher education. There are certain norms that govern my work in a way that I can't actually even use some principles from my own research <laughs> when I assess my students. And so bringing that knowledge about something that we call assessment for learning, bringing that in practice will already be an inclusive way of enhancing assessment. But that's not a very radical thing. That's I'm just saying that we should do what research knows works. Was perhaps a bit more radical which goes to your comment about uh, uncrating, getting rid of crates. Yeah, I largely support that. Let's just get rid of them. They take a lot of time for academics to provide crates and, and justify them. We could use the time in, in a much more productive way if student learning is what, uh, what is the ultimate goal of higher education. There's some brilliant work by Trina Jore de Saint-Jore about assessment for uh, 
distinctiveness, which means that traits, they, what they are, are numerical values that tell very little to the students about what they learn, or what they, what they know, what they have learned, but they tell even less to future employers about the actual capabilities of, of the student. So they're actually a very bad form of communication. They decontextualize some very contextual knowledge about student learning skills, abilities. So if we would replace grades with ways that celebrate student diversity by showing what students actually know, so we would have some kinds of academic standards, learning criteria, and then some kind of a way of communicating students' development, learning, becoming in higher education while reflecting on those criteria. That What that might mean in practice is, for example, an e-portfolio, which is not a radical practice per se, because we have Again, decades of work uh, on e-portfolios. Actually, a recently did a review that was uh, that even included studies on like late nineties with like those like, diskettes where they store your e-portfolio. This is not a new thing. It's not a radical thing. But it actually, when you bring that to the context of of trading and certifying student knowledge and learning, it is a radical idea that we would have some kind of a way of demonstrating that knowledge in a much more diversified way. But what that would mean in terms of comparable data, objective data, that I guess these institutions need to be able to provide, I don't know. But it might also be beneficial for the workplaces when they have applicants. Because, I mean, I, we tend to think about trading as something that is needed for the future workforce. So I tend to be critical towards that idea as well. But even from this viewpoint, why wouldn't a workplace want to know more about the student's actual skills? rather than seeing something like a GPA, which might tell you about something, but it's an average of random numbers that hopefully are based on something rather reliable, but it's not a statistical measurement in any kind of a way. And one final thing that is perhaps the most important thing when we think about practical ways of enhancing inclusivity of assessment is that we should include students themselves in these design processes. This is something very important. Assessment has a long history of being kind of a technical measurement process and what we have in measurement is someone measuring someone. So what we know in, in much more modern assessment literature is that when students are not only seen as the objects of assessment but very much active participants in, in assessment that enhances student learning. Well, similar idea can be used in a bit of a more radical way to invite students and also students from marginalized backgrounds to come and co-design assessment together with teachers, together with our pedagogical developer, developers in higher education institutions. And this would also be one uh, panacea for only uh, uh, seeing uh, students with disabilities through that medicalized uh, point of view. They could actually have some agency over their own assessment, which might, in the process, even benefit their, their content knowledge. When, when you need to uh, take part of the assessment co-design process, you also need to think about that very concrete things such as what is knowledge in my field? That would be very different in chemistry, creative arts, uh, architecture. How can I assess that knowledge? What kinds of practices work for that? When students are taking part of these processes, that's we know that it's good for student learning, but what that might also do for the inclusivity of assessment, That's there are so many opportunities there. Wow, there's so much more to think through, but I hope we can draw on some of that research and reimagine forms of assessment and start by making assessment inclusive from the very beginning. I mean, it's a lot to think about and hopefully can start changing some practices around the world. Yuso Naimunen, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Just an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Yuso Nieminen 
is an assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong. His new article is A Spanner in the Works, the Portrayal of Disabled Students in Assessment Adjustment Research. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interview, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Angunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Chainmensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.